welcome to the first episode of the podcast Deep Dive, where we take a closer look at Supreme Court cases and examine whether they have expanded or shrunk the rights of the people living in the United States. In each episode, we will look at a different Supreme Court case that relates to a social or political movement. We will talk about the development of the movement over time and how it culminated in the Supreme Court case. The guiding question of this podcast overall is, since the Constitution was ratified in 1787, how have people struggled to expand the democratic impulses of the American Revolution? The court case that we are going to talk about today is Whole Woman's Health v. Hellard Set. This court case relates to the women's health movement. Some people say that the women's health movement started in the early 1900s with Margaret Sanders' fight for women's rights to birth control, but most people think that it began in the 1960s and 70s. At the beginning of the movement, activists focused on fighting to gain control of their own reproductive rights. In the 1960s, abortion was illegal in all states except if it was to save a woman's life. Because of this law, there were more than one million illegal abortions annually. One third of these women had complications and had to be admitted to the hospital, and around 500 to 1,000 women died annually. In 1973, the Supreme Court decision of the case Roe v. Wade legalized abortion. After this court ruling, the women's health movement started moving into other areas that affected women's health. Activists had many different goals, but the main goal of the movement was a demand for improved health care for all women and an end to sexism in the health system. Alright, now that we've talked about the beginning of the women's health movement, we're going to talk about the 1980s, which was an era of setbacks and gains for the women's health movement. With Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 came an increasingly conservative political environment. Legalized abortions were under attack from anti-abortion activists, feminist health clinics became targets of violence, and many clinics closed. In 1989, the Supreme Court decision in the case Webster v. Reproductive Health Services led to more restrictions on abortions. Enough with the setbacks, now let's talk about some gains. In 1977, the Congressional Caucus for Women's Issues was formed as a legislative service organization with an active bipartisan voice in the House of Representatives on the behalf of women. In 1986, the National Institute of Health adopted a policy requiring the inclusion of women in clinical research. In 1990, the Office of Research on Women's Health was established within the National Institute of Health to bring public attention to the lack of research on women's health and to gain support for creating permanent change. Another important part of the women's health movement is the involvement of federal agencies in women's health research. In 1993, the FDA eliminated the restriction that excluded women of childbearing potential from participating in the early phases of drug testing. They also published revised guidelines to require sex-specific analysis of safety to be a part of all new drug applications. The CDC's 1994 budget from Congress included an additional $2 million for a screening program for chlamydia in women and their partners. The budget also included $51 million designated for pap smears and mammography screening for low-income women. In 
The CDC also established an Office of Women's Health, which provides leadership, guidance, and coordination on policy, programs, and activities related to women's health. Overall, I would say that the major achievement of the women's health movement in the 20th century was women gaining more control over their reproductive rights. Now that we've talked about the past of the women's health movement, we're going to talk about where the women's health movement is today. The women's health movement was crucial in ensuring that contraception was defined as an essential health benefit under the Affordable Care Act. In recent years, by that I mean after the election of Donald Trump, the U.S. abortion debate has heated up and many states have put restrictions on abortions. For example, in May 2019, Alabama approved an abortion ban, including in cases of rape or incest. Seven other states passed bills that ban abortion as soon as a heartbeat can be detected. And more than 20 other states have introduced or proposed some sort of restriction on abortion. These bans and restrictions have sparked many protests across the United States. All right, now we're going to get into the Supreme Court case. As I said at the beginning, the case that we are going to talk about is Whole Woman's Health versus Hellertset. First, I'm going to talk about who was involved in the case. The petitioner, or the party who petitioned the Supreme Court to review the case, was Whole Woman's Health. They are a privately owned feminist healthcare management company committed to providing holistic care for all. They manage health clinics that provide gynecology services, including abortion care. Next, we have the respondent, or the party being sued or tried. The respondent in the case was John Hellardset, and he is the commissioner of the Texas Department of State Health. Now you're probably wondering what the event that caused the case was. Well, on July 10, 2013, the Texas legislator passed House Bill 2, which contains several provisions related to abortions. The first provision was that it required physicians in Texas who perform abortions to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the abortion clinic. The second provision was that it required all abortion clinics to comply with standards for ambulatory surgical centers. It also banned abortions after 20 weeks. This law was what was called a trap law, or a targeted regulation of abortion providers and it was aimed at limiting women's access to safe legal abortions by targeting clinics and abortion providers. It created a set of unnecessary and unrealistic rules that abortion clinics must meet or face closure. After the law passed, many abortion clinics in Texas were forced to shut down. Now let's talk about what each side was arguing. The state argued that the bill was meant to protect women's health. Whole Women's Health argued that the intended and actual effect of the bill was to limit women's access to abortion across the state. They also argued that the law is unconstitutional because it places an undue burden on women seeking an abortion. In American constitutional law, there is something called the undue burden standard, which is a test where courts must assess the benefits and burdens of a law. If the burdens outweigh the benefits, then the law imposes an undue burden. 
Now for the most interesting part, the decision. The Supreme Court ruled 5-3 to three that the bill's regulations imposed an undue burden and was thus unconstitutional. Here is a quote from the opinion delivered by Justice Breyer. We conclude that neither of these provisions confers medical benefits sufficient to justify the burdens upon access that each imposes. Each places a substantial obstacle in the path of women seeking a proviability abortion. Each constitutes an undue burden on abortion access, and each violates the federal constitution. Justice Clarence Thomas did not agree, and he argued in his dissent that the court was choosing a level of judicial scrutiny to find a specific result, and also that the case never should have made it to the Supreme Court because it was already decided by a competent court. This court decision was significant for all states because it gave them some guidance on what makes the regulation an undue burden. In other words, it gave undue burden a stronger definition. Also, the day after the decision was announced, the Supreme Court turned away petitions from backers of similar laws. Now let's talk about how this court case relates to the guiding question. Since the Constitution was ratified in 1787, how have people struggled to expand the democratic impulses of the American Revolution? Although the bill was passed by officials who were elected by the people of Texas, the bill did not really take women into consideration. Democracy is government by the people, and women are people too, so this bill would have shrunk the democratic impulses of the American Revolution.